Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, thank you uh, very much indeed. And thank you for the I mean, immense privilege of, of um, not only being back uh, with you this morning, but to be able to contribute to your sermon series, which has been on this book, Enjoying God. And uh, I've read the chapter I needed to read before this sermon. I've dipped into other parts of the book. But what a great theme that you've been enjoying uh, over these past uh, weeks. Um, and where we come to this morning is to look together at Psalm 32. So thank you for reading it beautifully a few moments ago. Uh, there are Bibles, I think, in the chairs, or maybe you've brought your Bible with you. But to have it open, I think, would be, would be good for all of us. The page number is 560. 560, Psalm uh, 32. Uh, and we're told in the introduction that it is a Psalm of David, as most, though not all, of the Psalms are. What we're not told um, is anything about the circumstances within which the Psalm has been written. And sometimes it's really helpful, isn't it, when at the head of the Psalm we're told the circumstances in which David or one of the other Psalmists is actually. Uh, writing, all I think we can deduce from the psalm is that David, uh, King David, is deeply burdened by guilt. Um, and that's going to be our area this morning. He's deeply burdened by guilt. And I would even go so far as to say that he is experiencing considerable anguish in his experience of guilt that is seeping into his whole experience of life. Um, I recently came across the story of Clive White. 
um, and it's a few years ago now when this happened, but in 1995, Clive White claimed the record for catching the largest trout ever caught in the United Kingdom. Um, and for eight years, he lived as a holder of that record. But eight years later, he wrote this letter, which I'm going to read to you now, to the authorities uh, that exist in the fishing world, it's not a world I'm familiar with, that record record catches. And he wrote, and perhaps you can anticipate what this letter is going to say. Uh, Dear Mr. Rowe, this is 16th of July 2003. Dear Mr. Rowe, I'd like to take this opportunity to withdraw my claim in connection with the record rainbow trout ever caught. The record in question was the current British record rainbow trout caught at Diva Springs Trout Fishery on the 4th of April 1995, weighing 36 pounds, and then he gives all the uh, minute details of the weight. And he goes on to say, I did not catch the fish. I did not catch the fish. It was all set up so that there'd be a new British record. The fish was not even stocked into the lake. It was actually placed in a bag next to the lake, all ready for me to claim. And he goes on to say, I am very sorry. <laughs> and deeply regret what I have done, but I cannot live a lie anymore. As it has destroyed my marriage, for the sake of the fish. And it has nearly destroyed me. As a result, I've now given up fishing altogether. I know a lot of people will take a dim view of what I've done, but now I can sleep at night, knowing that I've nothing to hide. I feel sorry for the people I've cheated out of a genuine record claim. I only hope people will respect me, which I think we do, <laughs> Respect me for coming clean and telling the truth. Yours sincerely, uh, Clive White. Um, what a silly man. Um, that for the sake of the fleeting pleasure, I guess, of holding a certificate or probably having his photograph in the fishing news or something for a week, um, that this, uh, this lie had ended his marriage. And he said it's nearly destroyed him. And it does raise the awesome question, particularly given the number of suicides in our country, of how many people actually guilt has destroyed, literally destroyed their lives. Um, but for eight years, this man lived up under considerable anguish before he came uh, clean again. Guilt can do terrible things to people. Um, and I guess we would all, in some measure, want to bear testimony uh, to that. And I think I mentioned that incident because I think it helps to lead us into Psalm 32. Because what we get here, particularly if we look together at verses 3 and 4, we see what guilt has done to King David. Uh, we see something of the intensity of his suffering as for, we don't know whether it was days or months or years, he sat in a place where he hadn't dealt with uh, the guilt that he felt. Uh, so we read, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And it's a tiny little keyhole, isn't it, into the anguish of a person who is feeling considerable guilt for something that he's either done or not done in his life. As I say, we're not told what the reasons were. He says, I kept silent. Uh, his sin was literally a guilty secret that he couldn't speak to anybody else about. And guilt does that, doesn't it? It isolates us from others uh, because we're carrying something that we can't easily share with other people. Sin isolates. Um, it affected his health. My bones wasted away is perhaps just a little phrase summarizing the fact that this was having a, a detrimental effect upon his whole physical well-being. Uh, and he says, um, I groaned all day long. We, we might today speak about his mental health, not just his physical health. Here is, is not a happy man. Uh, here is not a happy king who is enjoying God or indeed enjoying uh, life. And we're told that the torment never left him. And I wonder if how you, whether you've had those experiences that you can't sleep away because it intrudes into the night hours as well as the daytime. For day and night, says uh, King David, your hand was heavy upon me. And it goes on to say that my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It left him in a, a languid and tired situation. Uh, this was sapping him of energy and of life. Uh, and God wasn't helping. And in a sense, why would God help in this situation? He says, uh, your hand, God's hand, was heavy on me. God's hand was heavy on me. God, if anything, was making the anguish worse. So I think we're seeing here just the anguish <laughs> that David was feeling under, uh, and, it, and, it, and it affected the whole of his life, uh, body, mind, and spirit. It affected the interior life, and it infect, affected him through the night hours as well as through uh, the daytime. And it's clear as we look at the whole of the psalm that David had done something. Um, we're not told what it was, uh, we know with Psalm 51, with, with which this psalm has some similarities, that he was writing Psalm 51 after his failure with Bathsheba. Um, is it the same event? Was it some other event? Was it something that he'd done, or was it a sin of omission, something that he was anguished about not doing? But the psalm is very clear that this is sin. Sorry to mention that in church. Uh, the psalm is absolutely unambiguous that what's going on here is that David is recognizing that he has committed, well, uh, verse 1, a transgression. Uh, and a transgression under God is, is trespass. It's trespassing outside of the boundaries, the moral boundaries that God has set for our lives. And David is recognizing that that is what he has done. He's committed a transgression. He's trespassed outside the boundaries of God's perfect and pure will and purpose. 
he goes on in verses 1 and 2 to refer to sin. Um, And why should we be unembarrassed, embarrassed at all, using that word in church? Um, But sometimes we are. Sin means missing the mark. Sin means this is God's perfect standard. This is the bullseye. And David is recognized that he'd missed the bullseye. Um, He'd missed the mark. And he says later on in the psalm, verse 5, he refers not to this as a transgression or a sin, but as an act of iniquity, which again is probably less popular a word than the word sin. But it means a moral stain, like the stain that ink might make on a piece of paper. It spoilt that which was meant to be good. So there's no doubt at all here that David is dealing with a figment of his imagination. He's dealing with something, though we know not what, that he'd either done or not done, and it led to him feeling this profound sense of guilt. And what I want to say before going on to look at how David dealt with the guilt is that there's good guilt and there's bad guilt. And it's pretty clear to me that the guilt that David is feeling is what we might call good guilt. In, in other words, it's guilt that is directly related to something that he has done wrong by way of transgression or sin or iniquity against God. But there is a false guilt. And I was helped a few years ago when I was thinking about this subject of guilt by the guilt book. Um, You probably wouldn't look at that. You'd probably not find it on the bestsellers uh, uh, list in W.H. Smith's or even a Christian bookshop. Uh, But it is really good, not least in helping us to distinguish between false guilt and good guilt. Uh, And I don't want to go on in this talk without, first of all, exposing the contrast between false guilt and good guilt. Because many of us, perhaps too often, can sit with an experience of false guilt rather than guilt that comes because we've trespassed the rule and the laws of God. Uh, And actually, it's a very erudite book. It's easily read, but it's erudite and thoughtful. But J. John, uh, actually, the evangelist, gives a really good and thoughtful um, foreword to the book. Uh, And in it, he just gives a pithy definition of false guilt and good guilt. Um, I'm just going to read J. John's definition of false guilt. But in summary... Um, it's got nothing to do with God. Okay? False guilt's got nothing to do with God. But false guilt is something that other people can put us under. Or even our own bruised and broken consciences, shaped by the difficult experiences of life, we can put ourselves under an experience of false guilt that sadly can lead us into exactly that same experience that David is describing in verses 3 and 4. It can weigh very heavily upon us, night and day, and dare I say it, down the years. There are too many people who are feeling guilt because they've not lived up to their parents' expectations 30, 50, 70 years on. But that voice, that standard not reaching a parental standard or a teacher standard, or indeed the standard of the church, 
we're not careful, the church can be a great guilt inducer. (laughs) That we can set standards of expectation for one another. That people feel immense guilt when they know they can't actually reach it. So this is how J. John defines uh, false guilt. He says it's a nagging, haunting remorse for something that was either not a sin at all or a matter so trivial that everyone else has long since forgotten about it. And he goes on to say, false guilt is a whisperer. Yeah? It whispers in your ear day and night. It tells us that we have failed, brings to our attention every flaw in our existence, and undermines our sense of worth. He says, false guilt is a prisoner. It creates septic wounds that infect souls and lives. How terrible. But it does it, doesn't it? Um, False guilt, he says, is a mocker. It sneers at our achievements. It ridicules our hopes of grace. And it denies our every attempt to do good. Um, And it has nothing to do with God. (laughs) It's got nothing to do with goodness. It's got nothing to do with the moral law of God. It's what life creates in us. But it can have very detrimental effects upon us. And we need to be very careful when we're talking about how to deal with guilt that we know whether it's a false guilt created by life circumstances and our own personal story and our personal psychology or whether it's, as the book says, a good guilt, a true guilt that's related to our trespassing the moral boundaries of God's law. So this is how um, J. John, in his uh, foreword, defines good guilt. You hardly expect to find the two words next to each other, do you? Good and guilt. I kind of even struggle with it, but as distinct from false guilt, this is the genuine article. Um, And as I read this, you need to think about that oil light in my car that started flashing a few weeks ago, 20 miles outside of Portsmouth, okay, Um, that told me that potentially something was wrong with my car. J. John says, good guilt is the warning icon on the dashboard of life that points out precisely what has failed and where. Good guilt, he says, inflicts a clean wound, the pure surgical sting of the certainty in our conscience that we have done wrong and need God's forgiveness for some specific act, word, or thought. He says, good guilt is sharply focused and points us Godward. Does that make sense to you, that, that, that contrast? False guilt's got nothing to do with God and goodness, but it wreaks a havoc in our lives. Uh, good guilt is a warning, flashing light in our lives that alerts us that something is wrong before God and that we need to take appropriate action. And I had to take appropriate action to find out why my oil light was flashing. Um, and we need to be alert to, to the good guilt. And what I think I, I want to say is that David, in his transgression, his sin, his in, iniquity, is feeling guilt which is of the good variety. In other words, he is recognizing 
that what he has done is to trespass the moral law of God. He stepped outside of God's perfect uh, purposes and will. And it is good because it alerts him to the action that he needs to take. Um, and we don't know how long he took. Was it eight years, like Clive White? Um, was it a few hours? No, it was more than a few hours. We know it was night and day. So it went on perhaps for days, maybe for weeks, I don't know, maybe for longer than that. But eventually, David sees the flashing light. He recognizes what's going on in him, and he takes appropriate action, and he gets there in verse 5. So we've read of the situation he's in, the guilt, what guilt is doing to him in verses 3 and 4. Then, verse 5, phew, then, I acknowledged my sin to you, to God, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Um, uh, census dawned. <laughs> He's done absolutely the right thing. And the elements of it that I'd want to draw attention to is that he's acknowledged it before God. Uh, I, I acknowledge my sin to you. He's brought it into the light. He's purposefully and intentionally brought it into the presence of God and acknowledged before the God who loves him. And he's very aware of God's love the reality of what he's done. He stops trying to cover it up. And that's generally what we do, isn't it, when we've done something wrong. We try and keep it out of the view of others. We think we can keep it out of the view of God. But David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. He stopped trying to hide it away. Uh, and, and I love the next bit. It said, says, I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I said, I will confess my transgressions. It's as if he's had an internal conversation. Uh, maybe in those night hours when he was feeling so anguished. And he's come to a point of purposeful, intentional decision to do this before God. Does that make sense? Um, guilt has led where guilt is meant to go. Guilt has brought him into confession and into repentance. And the great news of this psalm is that the immediate consequence of that is God's forgiveness. Amen? The immediate consequence of his confession and his repentance is God's forgiveness. So after all that protracted anguish and torment of guilt, there's an, experience, an immediate experience of forgiveness. And at the end of verse 5, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We want to say, phew, don't we? <laughs> the whole territory of the psalm changes. Um, as he's confessed and repented, so he receives an immediate assurance of God's forgiveness. And Tim Chester's, uh, Chester, in, in his book, Enjoying God, says the striking thing about this verse is that there's no gap between confession and forgiveness. Uh, no delay, no requirements. As soon as David confessed his sin, he was forgiven by God. Do you want to say hallelujah to that? As, as soon 
as David confessed his sin, he was forgiven by God. And with that forgiveness becomes a complete transformation in David's experience, which is why this is a wonderfully positive psalm. Uh, the whole territory changes. So instead of silence, which is where his guilt had led him, he now has a song on his lips. Have you noticed how Christians want to sing when they're reassured of their forgiveness? Verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Instead of his groaning, he has a deep joy in his heart, uh, which is where the psalm begins. Blessed, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there's no deceit. And instead of hiding, from, hiding his sin from God, he now finds that God is the one in whom he can hide as a place of security and of serenity. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And instead of God's hand being heavy upon him, which is what he felt the holiness of God did to him when he was holding on to his guilt and sin, instead of God's hand being heavy upon him in his guilt, he now delights that God's loving eye is on him. What a contrast. How wonderful. Because his relationship with God has been restored. That's what's happened. And he's aware now, verse 10, of God's unfailing love. Any amens? Not all of that. Um, all of which makes this um, not a depressing psalm to read but an utterly exhilarating psalm to read because we see a man move from agony to ecstasy, from condemnation to freedom, from despair to utter delight in the God who loves him. In the words of the hymn, David has been ransomed, healed, and restored, and, you tell me, forgiven. And he gives voice to that in the, all the positive aspects of this psalm. So have I got time just to say three things to you briefly? Yeah, am I allowed, Peter, a bit of time? Just say three things from this, uh, this journey as we've taken it together from deep guilt to exhilarating freedom in forgiveness. And the first is this, friends, we need to watch the dashboard of our lives for the flashing light of what I've referred to as good guilt. Um, we need to be alert when the lights are flashing um, and when we are carrying in our lives the guilt for something we've done. Uh, it may be today, it may have been yesterday, it may, may, like Clive White, be a guilt we've carried with all the negative consequences for multiple years. Yes, beware the false guilt. Beware the enemy who loves reminding us of things that have been dealt with in the past, buried in the depths of the sea, thrown as far as the east is from the west. Don't let the enemy lead you into a false guilt by digging up that which has been dealt with. 
And beware the false guilt that's got nothing, as I've said, to do with sin or God or goodness, but is more to do with what others, historically or at the present, are putting on you, or that your bruised conscience is actually putting upon yourself. But don't ignore the signs that God is drawing to your attention something that unless it's brought into the light of God's forgiving grace will be a heavy burden to carry. Can I say that? And can I be even more direct? You know, is God's, the whole point of a sermon is that God might speak, not a, not a preacher. And are some of us in this moment needing to recognize that the light has been flashing for a long time and we've ignored it and there's a danger that the oil's going to run out. Um, we need to be alert to that flashing red light and then go on the same journey that uh, David went upon. So my second point is this, don't despise the freedom that confessing and repenting of sin can bring. Uh, the glorious freedom. And Tim Chester in his book says this, repentance doesn't sound like fun. It involves admitting you're wrong or saying no to the pleasures of sin. But think of repentance as, and this is a great phrase, think of repentance as the gateway to the pleasures of God. Do you like that? Think of repentance as the gateway, the route into the pleasures of God. He says it can be a squeeze sometimes passing through the gate, but on the other side is a wide open space filled with light and filled with love. And I think what we see in Psalm 32 is a man, and remember he was a king, who'd had the humility and the good sense eventually to walk through that narrow gateway into the free, expansive, liberating places of his forgiveness and restoration of his relationship with the living God, where he could say his, uh, God had forgiven all his transgressions, God had covered all his sins, God wasn't counting any of his sins against him. And that must have been the experience of John Newton, the, the, the slave trader, when he wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, mustn't it? Uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He'd gone through the narrow gate of repentance into the glorious light-filled expanses of the grace and the forgiveness of God. What about Charles Wesley, that great hymn, And Can It Be? Um, please sing it at my funeral, Anne. <laughs> it's a great exposition of the gospel, and it concludes with that fantastic final verse. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And friends, all of that grace, all of that forgiving grace, is available to us. But don't despise the narrow door. We'll have to stoop a bit. We'll have to be humble. But as we go through that narrow place, we can come out into this vast expanse. Come on, a few hallelujahs. A vast expanse vast expanse. Is this not what the gospel's about? 
that we can, we can exchange that death and darkness and oppression and torment for this, this glory, this forgiveness. How utterly astonishing. Friends, don't despise the freedom that confessing and repenting sin can bring. Which brings me to a final point. Uh, and I'd love to preach sermons galore on this, and I'm running out of time. I don't think you're glaring at me, Peter, but it could happen soon. Which is that whatever David knew in the old covenant, we can know with an ever greater reality in the new covenant. Because now sin has been dealt with decisively, and it has been dealt with once and for all. What's it been dealt with? Once on and for and for all. The guiltless one, the only one in the whole of human history who's never had to experience good guilt, who had never ever trespassed or transgressed the law of God, who'd never ever committed a sin of omission or commission, the one whose life was never blighted with the darkness of iniquity, there was no stain upon the white paper of his life. The guiltless one has carried all our guilt. And all the just penalty that our guilt deserves, and he has carried it at a cost that we will never fully comprehend. We will never get to the bottom of the cost to Jesus, of the laying down his life and the separation from his father as he went into a place of utter darkness and separation in order that we might never need to be separated from the Lord our God. How astonishing, friends, that we live this side of the cross of Calvary. I wouldn't exchange it for any other time, certainly not before the cross. We live this side of the cross of Calvary, which means that the work has been done the price has been paid. The gates have been unlocked and they're wide open. That the curtain in the temple has been torn in two from top to bottom. And the way is open for sinners like you and me not to live in that place of oppressive guilt, but to walk straight into the arms of a God who loves us. And the writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. With confidence we can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having had our hearts sprinkled or cleansed from a guilty conscience. And you see, because of that, this becomes our story. This becomes our psalm. We can say, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We can say, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Yeah. And let me say this, will never count against us. Now or any day or even on the day of judgment, our sins, our worst sins, cannot count against us. 
because of the redeeming, sacrificial death of Jesus who's carried all the pain, all the punishment, all the penalty, all paid, all done, so that all that we need to do is stoop a little bit and acknowledge who we are and what we've done. And we come through into a glorious place of utter and total freedom. Paul in Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loved, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Hallelujah, what a gospel. (laughs) Amen.